I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988, and she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up, and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 57. Wow, we're on book 57. Uh (laughs) Uh, Dawn saves the planet. Thank God that's done. Yeah, that's what she likes to think she did. Yeah, Dawn (laughs) saved the planet and now climate change is over. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) 30 years ago it was finished. You guys do not know? (laughs) Dawn took it. Okay. So one sentence summaries, um, mine will be Dawn ruins saving the planet. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Um, Mine is uh, similarly undescriptive. (laughs) Uh, Mine is Dawn becomes a Bernie bro. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that dovetails nicely into mine, which is Dawn (laughs) tries to influence environmental behavior through yelling and shame. Mm. yeah, we basically very, said the yeah. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> very little B plot. Yeah. yeah. Is there is there a B plot? Not really. That's, I was like, okay, wait. How do we I don't know. I guess you can say the the babysitting plot, which is what Don and Stacy are doing for their project, is the but B plot. Part and of Dawn's, the A plot. Right. But Don's journey understanding what she did that wasn't effective is the A plot, right? Like Yes. No, I mean, there's not like a all the children in the world situation. Oh, <laughs> uh, there should be. <laughs> it yeah, shouldn't Dawn, always be. Why is Dawn always just unpleasant in all her books? Well, I want to know why Dawn is always ghostwritten now. Because there are others that are ghostwritten less. I feel like the last four Dawn books were ghostwritten. Mm-hmm. It looks I'm really like, sad. I am sad. I was like, why doesn't Anna Martin like her California girl? I don't <laughs> Why is she outsourcing her every time? Now I have Katy Perry stuck in my head. <laughs> All right. You guys <laughs> should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. Uh, I'm Esme Schaller. I don't Schaller. know what that means. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't make Can't it, do it. it this time. Uh-uh. Um, and I'm in Annie Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And if you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. And remember, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Woohoo! Three dollars a month. Okay. Let's not do more Patreon spawn con. <laughs> Instead, <sighs> we have a nice little listener letter. Woo! Mailbag. Is that what we call it now? <laughs> sure. Is that? Wait. Sorry. I just had a really vivid um, impression of like Blues Clues, <laughs> the mail <laughs> situation. Yeah. What's that- the? What was that jingle? Uh, we're too old. 
Okay. Sorry. Never mind then. Carry on. <laughs> you could do it. You could do it. And all I don't the elder millennials it, obviously. will be so excited. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked. <laughs> well, if someone knows, remembers that you can write us at Stuck in Stony yeah, email us at, at Stuck in Stony <laughs> Send an audio file of you singing the Blues Clues song. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So back to this uh, mailbag thing. We have an email from Molly who says, I emailed about a year and a half ago, curious what everyone's parents thought about your podcast. Now I'm curious about what Esme's daughters think and what about Emily's students? Are they aware of this really awesome piece of pop culture commentary? It also makes me wonder if I'm an anomaly in the demographic profile of your listeners. I was born in 1998 and my best friend, a Marianne to the core with some Jesse and Mallory on the side, and I were Long Beach, California's biggest young BSC fans in the late 2000s when we were in the fourth and fifth grade. Unrelated to that, any advice on starting a podcast that people actually want to listen to? I've blogged for nine years, have been told that I'm a very talented writer, but I'm under the impression nobody reads things online anymore. You can check it out at typebplusjourney.blogspot.com if you're so inclined. Cheers, Molly Rosenfeld. Thanks for writing, Molly. Just some good questions. Okay, Esme, so what funny. do your daughters think? Um, my daughters really like the podcast. Uh, they mm. both listen to it while they're doing chores. Um, and I think they, I am their least favorite part of the podcast. Um, but they are oh. high, high fans of both Emily and Anne. Um, my older daughter, Keely, is gunning to uh, appear on the podcast because Keely's favorite book is Mallory Hates Boys and Jim. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they feel like it distills their whole life. So um, we may we may have them have a little commentary. And then June um, just thinks the whole thing is funny and thinks it's amusing that I have a podcast. I don't think they understand. Molly's question was, are they aware of this really awesome piece of pop culture commentary? I, I don't think they understand how awesome it is. Um, what mm. about your students, Emily? <laughs> I don't think they listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> do, do any of them know about it, do you think? I'm not sure. I mean, it's like very easy to find it online, obviously. Can you work you it Google into me. one of your classes? Uh, sh- sure. I can, I can, yeah. I mean, I'm teaching a class on gender work and labor right now, and we're doing a oh. domestic labor, um, domestic Perfect. work, reproductive labor segment, and we're talking about housework and childcare and things like that. So, um, hello. I, 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 I could. <laughs> I have had, so I, um, Molly may or may not know this, but I have an older, longer podcast that I've been working on with people from grad school, which is on critical theory. And I've, I've actually had students find that podcast before and find it useful, I think in part, Mm -hmm. because it's a little bit, um, catered to Mm -hmm. folks who are seeking to have some help understanding a text that they might not have, you know, had that much comfort with when on their first encounter, right? Like mm-hmm. they're reading something and they're like, I don't get what this is. I'm going to look for a podcast on it. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I could plug it in my gender work and labor <laughs> class and see what happens. So conduct a study very yeah. scientifically. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think your class is probably more uh, Molly's demographic, as she mentioned. So born in 1998, I think you, you probably are a little bit of anomaly for us, Molly, but I'm curious if we've got other elder Gen Zers who listen to the podcast. Mostly we hear from the millennials and the Gen Xers. Yeah. Yeah. Extra credit to Emily's students. Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'm not a conflict sure. of interest at all. <laughs> That's illegal <laughs> or something. And then, um, frowned upon. I, yeah, frowned upon. Frowned upon. Yeah. Um, just frowned upon, but it's not an actual rule like when Ross dates his student. Yes. Um, that was the reference I was making. <laughs> it's frowned upon. Um, so I laughed out loud at Molly's question if we had advice on starting a podcast that people I actually want to listen to because I'm not sure we have done that. I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's so nice when we did our Patreon event where we met people on Zoom. I was like, this is really cool. It's people that none of us knew mm-hmm. um, who are interested in the same things we're interested in. And that was really awesome because yeah. typically the only like weekly encounter I have with people who listen to our podcast are people who are our friends or family members or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like really... It, it was a weird experience, weird and cool experience to like see the faces of people we don't know who listen to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. But I also, I'm not really sure, you know, Anne's always sending us screenshots of the like data analytics on our site traffic. And I'm like, I don't know how to interpret this. Like, yeah, we don't know mean? what it means at all. Yeah. Like, are people actually listening? I'm not sure. But I think, I think having a kind of clear community that you're talking to is part of it. And we thought a lot about that in the planning period. We did. Yeah. 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 We thought a lot about what our angle is and what, what we wanted to emphasize and also how to structure the show. I know all of my favorite podcasts have kind of recurring bits and themes and I sort of know how it's going to go. And I think we've, we worked hard to create that and also leaned on Anne's marketing and um, framing savvy and knowledge mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. help us <laughs> yeah. create a marketable product. <laughs> we love capitalism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and do you think any, any other advice for Molly? Yeah, I think most important is that Molly already seems to have a lane that she has, like with her blog. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not checked it out yet, to be honest. Sorry, Molly, but I will. But I'm sure she writes about something pretty specific. So just go with that and just figure out use. I feel like you should always use yourself as an audience. Mm-hmm. Like, would I want to listen to this if this was out there? So I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah. Great. Cheers, Molly. Thanks for writing. So spoiler alert, Dawn does not save the planet. Um, and I'm, I'm, we're, you know, Emily's corner is going to be big today because this is a lot of stuff that Emily studies, but what, what is the, the basic plot of this book, right? So they have, they're taking a, is it an ecology class? Yes. No, um, it's their science class. So it's their regular science class. And then yeah. they have an ecology with Mrs. Gonzalez and they have a, a ecology project that gets mm-hmm. assigned. And um, they're learning about acid rain and air pollution and vanishing animal life. There's all these categories. And so then Dawn gets really fired up about it. And they decide to start a class for some of the kids they babysit for. And she and Stacy decide to partner up. Um, but then, as is often the case in Ghost Written Dawn books, she's a total B. And people get upset with her. <laughs> And uh, but then eventually she helps start a recycling center at Stony Brook Middle School. I'm cutting yeah. some corners, but that's the basic that's the basic outline. That's yeah. the plot. Yeah. yeah, that's the plot. 
Um, and she also and inspires the kids to be jerks about recycling and and saving to their parents specifically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> specifically. So all the babysitting chapters are like, oh yeah, our kids are being total assholes to us when we do things that are bad for the planet. It's like yeah. cool. <laughs> Yeah. In, in the first chapter, it says she's always been outspoken when it comes to environmental issues. Is that true? I don't really remember that being spoken she's about. A, she's no, mentioned a few things. I think you're right, though, Anne. It's like part of the lore of the BSC universe, but I think this is the first book where it's really realized or specified. Um, like, it's not like at every meeting she. Right denigrates the individually wrapped, you know, candies that Claudia's mm-hmm. handing out or makes any yeah. remarks on them. I did That's not true. like that part. Yeah. But it's also <laughs> funny how it says she's she's outspoken when it comes to environmental issues or organic food. She loves her yeah. organic she yeah. loves health food. <laughs> I just like how they're lumped together. Like if you yeah. like organic food, you also probably care about the planet. Planet, planet mm. care about the planet, which is not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Yeah. yeah I mean, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I think they're drawing parallels with liking health food and liking natural things with caring about the environment. And I think we've seen her and make being a comment. From California. <laughs> yeah, I think we've seen her make a comment or two across the series, but not much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really interesting book. I mean, there's. So one one thing that was fascinating to me and that kind of shocked me is that she frames her zealousness about the project in terms of ecology. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like right in the nineties, the common sense on environmentalism is not yet shifted to the kind of like um, near apocalyptic (laughs) sort of worry about devastating climate change Mm -hmm. that um, constitutes our our kind of environmental sensibility now. Um, but I was sort of surprised that ecology was kind of like the dominant frame because I mm. feel like that's a, um, I don't know when, when I was a kid and we used to have very tiny snapshots of sort of environmental education, it was always in terms of sort of water conservation, right? Like mm-hmm. turn off the sink when you're brushing your teeth well, or yeah, whatever. You lived in the central Valley. Right. Where water <laughs> is, a, is, it was a desert that yeah. was like viciously re- configured by greedy, you know, people who were enslaving the native people and like trying to suck every bit of, you know, surplus value they could out of the land. And it's like not, and and then it transformed into the, one of the biggest agricultural centers in the world. And so that, that sort of shortage of water or like the politics of water have, were Mm -hmm. like very critical to the region, but, but it was still about conservation and not about, guarding against or trying to minimize or mitigate the effects of climate change, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, in the 90s, it was global warming, right? And now it's climate change. Um, But I still think ecology was not the dominant frame of thinking about it, right? There was, Mm -hmm. there were like particular resources that were going to be lacking. And so we as individual kind of consumers had to um, do our part to contribute to the the project of of lessening those effects. Mm-hmm. And, and and so that we could maintain the status quo was kind of like the implication of it. Yeah. Right. And but ecology is a concept that's about ecosystems and balance and relations among mm-hmm. entities that share space together. 
Um, so I, I thought it was kind of cool and a little progressive for mm-hmm. a book written in the early 90s to have ecology be the entry point into mm-hmm. like Don's care about mm-hmm. about the environment. But on the on the other side of it, all the solutions are these like really minimal individual level solutions, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, what can you do as a person? And the question, right, that that launches Don into this crusade is can kids save the planet? And it's like mm-hmm. that, even that way of framing it as like that burden of responsibility that like children <laughs> are mm-hmm. bear some responsibility in rescuing the planet from the like harms that some that other people have already done is yeah. like such a way of undermining the like real causal mechanisms of deep systemic and and unsustainable climate change, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think like the lefty sensibility now is that like, sure, you can ban straws and like impose recycling regulations on people. But if you don't have the capacity to regulate what corporations do, then like it doesn't fucking matter what individual consumers do. <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. And so I think it's interesting to see that like interpersonal drama play out on the stage of like that struggle between individual and systemic levels of change at the same time as the like ecological frame is the sort of backdrop for it. So I think in in some ways it's a bit ahead of his time. And in some ways it's a very old school and kind of non-applicable sensibility about what to do about climate change. Well, I think it's still what people are are drawn toward though. I oh, mean, 100%. Well, it's easier to say like, oh, if I don't do straws, I'm doing something. If I don't use straws, I'm doing something good than it is to think about like where you buy your clothes from or where, you know, where you source all of the like bullshit you don't need in your home from and all that crap. Yeah. Remember? Very eloquently put. Yeah. <laughs> but you see what I'm, you, you get what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually remember a former classmate of ours as me who like got mad at us for using straws. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> but it was very Don-like. Is what I'm, was yes. it Michelle? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Michelle. But Michelle also knows who we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what about the specific, were there any specific recommendations, Emily, that struck you as very 90s? Like some of them seem pretty basic, but I, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's like, we don't, we definitely don't hear a lot about acid rain anymore, for instance. No, yeah. Like, well, you know what's really interesting about the discourse on acid rain is how much it overlapped with and sort of um, was the... Okay, so acid rain was a, in part uh, a worry that was precipitated by like Cold War era geopolitics. Mm. And so it's really interesting to look at um, kind of like the era of time when climate change was not a um, like political stance that um, designated some sort of like divide between political parties, but was just a sort of like social problem that everyone was interested in. Right. I mean, like Mm -hmm. one of some of the first presidents and legislators to address climate change were Republicans. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and now in the last 10 years, we have this phenomena where Republicans, especially like 
really right wing conservative Republicans are increasingly like climate change deniers, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was a nonpartisan issue, but there were dimensions of it that linked to sort of concerns around what the consequence of like a nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States would be. And a lot of the scientific study of those phenomena were were also like embroiled with the study of, you know, like studies that were being authorized and deployed for military purposes. And so mm. the the history of like the study of some of that shit is really deeply intertwined with the history of um, you know, the Red Scare and like Cold War sort of pro- uh, anti-Soviet propaganda and all that shit. And so it's kind of, it's interesting to me that, that that's um, one of the sort of ecological issues because mm-hmm. it, it in effect ended up being a like deeply political issue. Um, so I knew that there were going to be like metal bands named Acid Rain. So I looked it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So there's a a Latvian band called Acid Rain, a Serbian progressive power metal band called Acid Rain. Uh, there's a band called Acid R E I G N. Anyway, there's a lot of them. I just wow. knew that there. I just knew that there would be a lot of bands, and they would mostly be metal. And do you, you remember right. the Acid Rain T-shirt I had? No, it had. It had two raindrops on it, and one of them was a regular raindrop, and it said normal rain. It was a cartoon. And then the other one had, like, a psychedelic paisley pattern in it, and it said acid rain. Get it? Like, psychedelic rain. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, acid. Get it? I wore that shirt a lot. Do you think... (laughs) It's about drugs. (laughs) Do you think hipster Anna Martin would have worn that shirt? (laughs) While sipping her cappuccino? Yeah, 100%. I tried to Google it. I can't... I don't know if I can find it, but I I wish that I still had that shirt. It was like a good good joke shirt. I love it. I love it. A joke. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I felt like I had another question for you about it. I, is it? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, one other thing that I thought was really fascinating is that um, Stony Brook wouldn't have had a recycling program. So I was just going to say. Yeah. Um, I think that seems a bit implausible to me for the time, but also it's interesting because now the like New York tri-state area exports all trash and recycling abroad. Um, mm-hmm. So like there's a lot of sort of disillusionment with the the citywide trash system mm-hmm. in part because there's garbage everywhere all the time and like we have a rat problem and it's fucking disgusting but also you know there are differentiated trash cans and recycling cans everywhere but our trash gets shipped to Canada to Japan mm-hmm. to China I mean we export our trash all over the world all the islands between New York and you know Europe that were once trash repositories are full and Mm. are like what to do with trash is something that people make money off of, which is just fucking mind boggling. So the, the gap between like an early, what was it like 1992, Mm -hmm. you know, portrayal or portrait of a, 
uh, idyllic Connecticut town with no recycling program and like 30 years later yeah. where there's so much fucking garbage and recycling that we literally send it to other countries and people make money off of it is just yeah. so so enormous <laughs> like yeah I I actually thought I was curious what you would think and if you'd looked into like when those things started that was believable to me because I remember when we got curbside recycling in Sacramento I don't know what yeah. year it was but I remember not having it when we were younger and then getting it as kids no. The 90s yeah. was the decade where that became more common and somewhat uniform. Right. Um, My friend Jocelyn, who lived around the corner, her parents were kind of hippies and they would drive to the recycling center to mm-hmm. recycle things, right? And my dad was always like, recycling's a scam. I taught ecology, you know? Um, and so <laughs> for some of the reasons that you're talking about, right? So, um, but I think that, you know, getting that and, and we're seeing some of that now, right? With curbside compost too, like that that's slowly spreading to more places and wasn't in a lot of places for a long time. Um, so it was believable to me that they would just have like a center not in town, but that it's actually a great, you know, having a drop-off place at the middle school is a great idea. Like, great I, idea. I thought, like, Don's actual idea was really good. Yeah, I did too. And I think it's, like, the idea that um, the next generation is the kind of target of an ecological or environmental sensibility is also good. I mean, you see this, like, okay, in, like, um, environmental philosophy questions around um, environmental justice, right? Like whose responsibility is it to redress the harms of climate change? There's this argument about the kind of intergenerational cost, right? That like we mm-hmm. have an obligation to guard against the harm that we might be imposing on future generations. So this, this, the like um, time scale kind mm-hmm. of component of something like climate change or whatever is like a critical part of the way that this is talked about in terms of ethics, right? Like who, whose job is it? And mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's spot on to think about or, or to create a program dealing with this that's about children, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the future. But again, there's this still kind of like displacement of, of accountability um, right. that it puts the onus of responsibility on individuals rather than holding the kind of, the structure of our economy and the way we distribute goods and resources itself accountable. You don't think Bill and Melody Corman work for Exxon? I, they might. <laughs> Maybe they do now. Yeah, they 100% do now. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I looked at it from the psychology that I thought was interesting in this was the persuasion piece, right? So, and there's... Um, you know, is Dawn has a goal that is a worthy goal of trying to get people to pay more attention to ecology and in the environment and um, becomes singularly focused on it in a way that is developmentally appropriate in the way that 13 year olds can't, you know, um, young adolescents are, are very idealistic and do get really, really focused on things that are, are important to them. Mm. So that struck me as, as accurate. And the fact that she's actually pretty shitty at convincing people to change their behavior also seemed pretty accurate to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but humans in general have a lot of false beliefs about how we change other people's behavior. Um, mm. And I can't do a full review of kind of all of the work and persuasion because a it's not all in psychology there's a ton of it in your field Emily of course as mm-hmm. as you would know um and there's a bunch in philosophy as well like a lot of people are interested in persuasion if you do a lit review on persuasion you get like 20,000 articles so i'm just going to do some broad stroke stuff of kind of 
where Dawn goes wrong, <laughs> like what some of her assumptions are that are not serving her in actually trying to make this happen. Mm. So do you guys have any guesses of what you, like what you think some of either what an assumption of hers is that isn't true or like a specific misstep that she makes? Oh, I I mean, I this really dovetails with my uh, <laughs> anecdotal point that has nothing to do with my expertise, which is her mm-hmm. the Bernie broness of her yes. approach, which is just like the the problem that I've observed in kind of lefty political circles where folks are so hyper focused on um, like this big structural issue that there's no compassion or I don't know like forgiveness in. Mm-hmm very regular sort of human missteps and I was just mm-hmm. like so cringy kind of in, in some of those <laughs> moments of exchange because I was like I've been in those rooms <laughs> yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. yeah totally what do you think Anne yeah definitely I agree with what Emily just said also the assumption that just because something is the right thing to do doesn't mean people are going to do it mm-hmm. I feel yeah. it's like yeah so she it's has not, kind of an information hypothesis. Like she's yeah. operating that like people are just lacking information and mm-hmm. that if she tells them this is good for the planet, she's assuming A, they will care as much as she does about that. Mm-hmm. And B, once they have the correct information, it will change, change their behavior, yeah. <laughs> which um, just doesn't work. And I think that uh, you you see that a lot with people that sort of over-intellectualize their arguments and um, view, view this as an information deficit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that actually information very seldom changes people's behavior. Um, and that the things that we've, which is why statistics don't work and, yeah. and, you know, and why good journalists when reporting statistics will also find a person that exemplifies the thing that they're reporting about and tell an individual person's story because humans don't understand statistics on a fundamental, one might even say like uh, evolutionary level, like where our brains are just mm-hmm. not really made to understand what 100,000 people versus 10,000 people means mm-hmm. um, when you're talking about who's affected by something. And so and Dawn spouts a lot of statistics in here yeah. about how much water is wasted by one drip or how many trees it takes for a piece of paper and all that kind of stuff. And the idea that anyone, let alone like a 10-year-old, will be influenced by purely that information is uh, just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, we we generally need some kind of emotional hook. And then the other thing that you guys are talking about is this sort of wall of argument without assessing where the other person is starting from. Mm. So the babysitters get really annoyed at her because they're like, yeah, Don, we know about recycling. Like we've heard of it, you know, like because <laughs> she's yeah. just spouting information as if she's the first person that's discovered any kind of environmental um, actions or consciousness. Um, And then other people are getting annoyed because she's also using, as I said in my summary, shame and yelling to to, to try to influence behavior instead of saying like, oh, hey, tell me more about why you use paper towels say like Mm -hmm. how did you come to buy this particular brand of paper towels and why does it work for you and your family and oh I wonder if there's something else that you could use because actually that you may not know this but it uses a lot of trees and maybe we can think you know not 
and it still might not change. Mm-hmm. There's also this, um, she also has this false correlation between the amount that somebody cares about the environment and or cares about her and that mm-hmm. that should be directly related to their actions, mm-hmm. which we also know that humans are just complicated and they often don't do things that would be in, in their own best interests and other yeah. people's best interests for a whole constellation of complicated reasons. I feel like, too, we've talked on the podcast before about um, the problem of scale and scope, right? What Mm -hmm. you're talking about, the difference between understanding 10,000 versus 100,000, right? That you can't empathize. It's hard to empathize with something that's so sort of detached from your everyday material existence. And so you might care Mm -hmm. deeply about the Mm -hmm. capacity for people to continue to live lives (laughs) that are meaningful and fulfilling and Mm -hmm. where people meet their subsistence needs in the abstract, but mm-hmm. to the, to have that actually translate into how you move through the world isn't given. Yeah. Right. It's not necessary. Yeah. Um, no, it's just like, I mean, I agree with everything both of you have been saying, and it also paints a very bleak future <laughs> in general. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So well, don't use straws, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Save I mean, the dolphins. Yeah. The other the other thing I think she does, which is hard and, and which I think is maybe more about her being 13 than about her being ineffective, is that she just has a hard time um, perspective taking and kind of using what we term theory of mind in terms of mm-hmm. because this is the most important thing to her at this moment she kind of assumes it should be the most important thing to everybody. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of, um, and I think this is where the shaming comes in. There's a lot of like, well, I see that this is the most burning pressing issue. And since you don't see it, you just must not care very much about mm-hmm. anything, you know, as opposed to the idea that there's a lot of different passions in the world and a lot of different people care about a lot of different things. <laughs> and, you know, Christy and Marianne and the gang could also have other things that they're equally passionate about that might be equally valid to be passionate about that Dawn is just unable to see in this moment because she's so consumed with her mm-hmm. love of the planet. Um, so that that inability to to be curious and perspective take, in addition to just kind of shoving facts down everybody's throat is why she is a white man in a political conversation in the 2000s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think a lot about too, I, I'm not sure she's exactly guilty of this, but something that I've noticed um, anecdotally in kind of lefty circles is the, the ease with which you can say, well, because capitalism as an explanation of something, mm-hmm. but how, little that begs, right? Like you, if you can't be specific about what dimension of capitalism is the source or the cause of the specific problem you're trying to analyze, then like, you're not really saying anything. You're just using that as a sort of stopgap or like a way out of Mm -hmm. accountability, honestly. And so like, I think, I don't think Don was necessarily doing this, but some Mm -hmm. of that back and forth around her attitude and her approach to getting everyone on board with her just really was a little triggering, frankly, from yeah. from like some of those conversations I've been a part of. And I'm just like, oh God, yeah. I've seen 
I've seen people go down this path and like, it doesn't end well for the politics of solidarity. <laughs> yeah. No, it definitely does not. Yeah. And then I, I was also curious, Emily, this is kind of a, a back to you throw. And then I had like two other quick things, but I was curious what you thought about the, the fact that Dawn is a girl um, and what messages we might be smuggled here about back to our friend bossiness and the mm-hmm. ways women need to lead compared to how men are expected to lead. Because it did seem like some of the criticisms of her and like Grace and Cokie complaining that she's been so bossy in the hallway um, really did have a sexist cast to them. And I was wondering if like Logan had led this charge or Bart Taylor had led this charge, if there would have been similar um, reads on Dawn's behavior. Yeah, I think that's interesting too, especially if you take a kind of like ecofeminist approach, mm-hmm. right? Like there's this sensibility that like women, not by virtue of some innate kind of natural capacity, but by virtue of their social position, have mm-hmm. a kind of unique lens or angle on questions related to the environment. And mm-hmm. in part, that's because of like women's historical role in the work of necessity, right? Like mm-hmm. the daily and kind of generational reproduction mm-hmm. of the social order. Mm-hmm. And also because of like global capitalism, right? That like women in places um, that are being exploited by, in poor places that are being exploited by rich places tend to be the first ones sort of displaced by Mm. that reconfiguration and the first sort of victims of of the effects of climate change and so mm-hmm. there's this idea that like f- feminism and ecology have a kind of intimate um relationship to one another by virtue of women's historical and social position mm-hmm. or relationship to the environment and so i think there's like a way in which don's environmentalism is not ecofeminist, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's a little it, again, right? To go back to my se- summary, it's a little yeah. like individualism, broy, yeah. Um, but I think the response to her is totally laced with mm-hmm. that that like backlash against yeah. any kind of like feminist activism or politics yeah. in general, yeah. right? That like it used oh, to be so nice. Yeah, you used to be so nice, and now you're demanding all these things, and you're telling us what to do. It's like, oh, you've not you've not acquiesced to your social role, and so yeah. now we're we don't like what you have to say anymore, right? <laughs> and right. we you're don't agree with you because enough. of the yeah. way that you're saying right. you're saying it. Yeah, but I think it's interesting. Like, I, I it could have been potentially an interesting way to like make her ecological sensibility more Mm -hmm. feminist but i you know again early 90s sensibility so like i get it but yeah (laughs) my other things are pretty quick one i I have three quick things one is dolphin safe tuna man that was big in the 90s remember all that Anne? remember all that conversation um so i sort of laughed out loud because (laughs) i was like oh no one ever talks about that anymore but we were really stressed out about dolphins getting caught in tuna nets yeah yeah, I feel like in general, we don't really care about animals anymore. Like endangered yeah. species were a really big thing, like a huge yeah. thing. And now we just let them, it's like, sorry. We're we just tried. like, we're going to be on fire soon. So we tried, <laughs> but sorry, bummer, man. Yeah. I just listened to this really sad, This American Life, about like the last snail of a species in a lab when they were trying to get it to mate and it wouldn't mate. And like the second to last one died. And then like all the researchers watched the last one die. I cried. It was really awful. That's, of um, horrible. Cried. That's yeah. horrible. That's horrible. It was horrible. 
Um, but you're right. I feel like we don't care about animals. It's like that much they anymore, saw extinction. For, yeah, they saw extinction. They like witnessed it. Like <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Um, but we care about polar bears because they are representative of the climate crisis. But that's yeah. the only animal we're talking about. <laughs> Right, because their environment is literally disintegrating in yes. front of our eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Oy. glad we saved all the dolphins. My other thing that, oh, and cutting up soda rings, that was also really huge. <laughs> Gary still oh, yeah, I still that. do. I still do that. <laughs> I still, I just have it. Yeah. I can't. It's in there. Don't want to, don't want a little fish get stuck. Um, mm-hmm. Little birdie. Uh, and then I, the thing I found most unbelievable in this as someone who leads Girl Scout meetings twice a month is that Stacy and Don created a, an hour long class with, of lecturing for 13 children of raging in age from four to 10 and that the kids are just like wrapped and into it the whole time. Yeah. So, completely unbelievable. Yeah. Like yeah. the class just goes perfectly. Like the problem is between Stacy and Don, but there's no issue teaching mm-hmm. all these kids this stuff. I understand they already have good relationships, but it's just like, I was like, no, that's not how that goes. Mm-hmm. Jackie's yeah. spinning in the corner. Like other things are happening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and then my last question is, is the, is the, the merit or the medal of a ghostwriter tested in chapter two? Because these people, this is a double ghostwriter situation. And chapter two was just a freaking list. Did you guys notice? It was just a list. Like, this is who Christy is. These are the members of her family. She has a dog and a cat. This is who Marianne is. Like, it was the worst chapter two I think I've ever read. You guys probably always skip chapter two, so you don't even know. But I, I don't <laughs> skip it. Okay. I did. I, just I did note they still. it. <laughs> yeah. They still describe Claudia the same way. That's the I, exotic, good skin, eats junk food. Yeah, but it was well, a list. But, you know, it's so wild that her skin is so good because she I eats know. so much junk food. I know. <laughs> All right. And so what do you got? Um, well, um, before I get into my little nuggets, do you, do you think that we have progressed any since the 90s with our environmental... Like, have we made progress? Or is it just worse? Well, I think this is so... The the question of, like, who's responsible is so critical in answering that question. Because mm-hmm. I listened to this Democracy Now! episode last week that was, like, reviewing all a bunch of new studies on climate change. And essentially, like, every prediction that scientists made 10 years ago about things like sea level rise and, you know, like the status of the Mediterranean Sea and the salinity levels and stuff were wrong, but not, not wrong in that they under, in that they overestimated harm, but that they underestimated it like fairly drastically. So I think the like gap between our sensibility of like what we have to do as, you know, members of a society who are worried about sustaining the, the resources and goods necessary to like have a social order and like the pace at which those goods are leaving, right. Or like being eradicated is huge. And so it's like really hard, I think, to answer that question because mm-hmm. like we're, we've under, we've not taken seriously like how bad it is. Right. Right. 
So that's her podcast. And I, know, uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> I know this has been so depressing. And it's my birthday. This is sad. <laughs> yeah, it's really birthday. Can Anne, can yeah. you cheer her up? Sorry. <laughs> Anne, help well, me. I know. Well, one more, like, more just, you know, question is, okay, so 90s was pre really, like, internet. I mean, there was internet, but only, like, really, like, fancy people had it. <laughs> or if you're, like, a scientist or something. Um but we were still living in this culture of like mass cultural movements. Like we were living, mm. like we didn't have social media. We couldn't kind of just curate our own little streams and feeds and only see what we want to see. Like we were still watching, everyone was still watching the same TV shows, listening to the same songs on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing was on demand yet. And it seems like the 90s was probably the decade where environmentalism became became kind of like within the culture, like, you know, fabric, like in terms of pop culture and stuff like that. And so now I'm just thinking about how now everybody's lives are so curated. And like, Mm. I feel like we've kind of missed our chance or that was our big moment, I feel, to make environmentalism like a true movement. I guess, Mm. in terms of just like uh, uniting the population together, because now, you know, whatever, through Twitter or Facebook or sorry. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Rainforest Cafe. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Well, you know what I was getting at. (laughs) Yeah, Um, amazing. Amazing. Um. But so this book was released in 1992. So a lot of the things I mentioned are going to happen after that. But, you know, going along with what I just mentioned about kind of this mass movement of culture pre-internet where, you know, everyone was kind of seeing and hearing the same things that I think that did lend to things like the Rainforest Cafe, where mm. there was, you know, they were like, oh, like people, this is a thing. Like people starting to care about, you know, and same with the rainforest is also another huge thing. Endangered species and the rainforest were like, oh my God. I think we were all obsessed with the rainforest. <laughs> yeah. Esme, you had a rainforest shirt that had frogs on it. Didn't you? That's the other shirt that I really miss along with my acid rain shirt. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It was black and yeah. it had like a big drawing of the rainforest and there was frogs uh, and like a tiger peeking out. Yeah, and other- I remember oh, it. I'm going to try to Google both of those t-shirts right now. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know, like it, I think like we equated saving the rainforest and saving endangered species with saving the environment. And um, so yeah. Rainforest Cafe, the first location opened in the Mall of America. <laughs> Oh, my God. In uh, 1994. So for those of you not familiar, I think there might still be some rainforest cafes out there. But it was basically just like a themed restaurant. And you go inside. It looks like a rainforest. There's like animatronic orangutans and whatever around. (laughs) Sometimes there's like a waterfall and it seemed just kind of like a jungle. Right. And then you would eat your Mm -hmm. shitty food. And like you buy a t-shirt and then, you know, capitalism, right, Emily? That's yeah. That's that's uh, it, baby. Yeah. Um another thing that was big in the nineties were uh these the nature company store and also natural wonders. Do you oh. remember these stores, Emily? You may not. Oh, Emily, no. I used to go to them okay. with you when you were a baby, Emily. I don't remember. Visit. Yeah. The Fresno Mall, I think. Yeah. So 
actually, did you notice me that the Nature Company was started in Berkeley? Huh. I did not. But newsflash, I just found my Rainforest t-shirt. Um. <laughs> okay, we'll, have, we'll, we'll post that. It's very exciting. I can't find my acid rain one, but Can it's a Greenpeace shirt. Um, it says Greenpeace 90s t-shirt, endangered animal t-shirt. I might be able to buy it. It was a Greenpeace t-shirt? Yeah. Amazing. Oh, my God. I'm going to send you guys the link. I'm so excited. Wow. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Um, yeah. Nature Company was started in Berkeley, though? I didn't yeah. have any idea. Yes. So it was just a store that kind of had, like, crystals and, like... Mm-hmm. Kind of like those nature CDs where you heard rain falling or like rain nature sticks CDs. <laughs> and, you know, like stuff like that. And it was pretty popular. There were so many of st- many stores like that where I grew up in Three Rivers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so then the store opened called Natural Wonders and which was similar, but at a lower price point. And nature mm. companies sued Natural Wonders $10 million in damages saying that they copied them. Did they oh win? Oh, God. Um, I don't think they won. But it's funny because this article talks about how um, people would go to the nature company and write checks out to Natural Wonders and like vice versa because <laughs> they were so oh my similar. God. Yeah, they were really um, similar. They're very similar. Uh, were they really though? And, and what was your most coveted item at the nature company or Natural Wonders? I feel like we Honestly, liked those stores a lot. I always wanted a rain stick. I was just going to say that. that was mine too. <laughs> Emily hates us right now. I just, and <laughs> no, I it's just so funny. Did you buy me one? I think I like I have had one. You had one. I think I think you and Michelle might have chipped in and got really? it for me for a birthday. Yeah. Oh man, I wish yeah. you still had that. They're so good. They were so good. I I wish I could remember the name of the store in Three Rivers that sold all this shit. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Esme? It I, had like a dome. And oh no! Um, the one thing there. that we had from there was a Moncala set. Ha! Nice. Oh yeah, yeah. Moncala also very big. <laughs> yes, massive. Oh my! Wow, I'm transported. Yeah. And thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, because it was also really nice when you were in the like mall and you were at like what other crazy stores aren't don't exist anymore, like the Warner Brothers store and like right. these other places <laughs> that were like loud. And then you would go into Natural Wonders or the Nature Company and it would have like rain sounds playing, you know, and it'd mm-hmm. be like, caw, caw. Mm-hmm. And you'd like, be like, rain stick. Yeah. Oh. And you'd be like, wow. No. Yeah, yeah. You play with the rain stick. Whoa, it like, sounds like rain. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> you'd have some like cute stuffies and stuff. Yeah, and, like, um, like a frog stuffy, like a frog stuffy, and then like oh pretty God. books. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. and you know, copies Crystals. of fifty simple things kids can do to save the mm-hmm. world. Um, and uh, yeah. Oh, what were those things? Can't kids save the world though? Yeah. Yeah. What was that solar paper where you put the leaves on? Oh, yeah. Sun prints. Sun prints. Yeah. That was also really big. Sun prints. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. My last tidbit. Uh, so I thought this was funny. In 1995, Michael Jackson released Earth Song, which was a really big hit. Mm-hmm. But he performed it at the Brit Awards, 
And he was like descending from some like thing into like a choir of people and Jarvis Cocker, like, like from, pulp? Rushed, from pulp, like rushed the stage and like pretended to fart on him. <laughs> what? And it caused what? this big controversy. And Jarvis was saying how he uh he he was like protesting like just the idea of like a Christ like figure or something pretending wow. to like care about the environment, but later went on record to say that Earth Song is still a really good song and he likes it. <laughs> what? There, there's a kid in Keeley's ninth grade class who is named Jarvis, and he is indeed named after Jarvis Cocker. Oh my god! Amazing! Wow. Um, Andrew's friend is named Tupac. <laughs> And so, yeah, I was like, awesome. wow, okay, <laughs> going straight to okay, yeah, yeah, um, wow. yeah, so that's that's it for me. Um, did, did Claudia get to eat any candy? She did eat some candy because Don yelled at her about it, yeah. She there were some mentions of candy, uh, like she like Don mentioned she likes ring dings, candy kisses, and Malamars. But, I but then think she had something the, weird that was individually wrapped, didn't she? Uh, she had chocolate drops, maybe that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what it yeah, was. Yeah, it was chocolate drops, which I think she meant Hershey Kisses, which are wrapped in foil. Yeah. Which well, are not. I don't hmm. know. Chocolate drop sounds like a, th- a thing. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, but I think that was it. Oh, and gummy bears. She ate some gummy bears. I just found some chocolate drops online. They're just like flat, sad looking Hershey Kisses. Ew. So maybe she had those individually wrapped in plastic. Well, right, because foil and plastic are different. Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry, sorry to insult the intelligence of you, listener. <laughs> so, Anne, actually, I was looking back over it because you said you noticed they described Claudia the same way. They didn't. There's oh, not they didn't? the only tally I caught in this book was calling Stacy sophisticated. Um, doesn't mm-hmm. call Marianne shy or sensitive. She. They do reference Claudia blinking her dark eyes at me. Um, <laughs> So they're dark. They're not almond shaped. I fucking missed that. What yeah. the hell? Yes. She Claudia blinked just her, blinked dark, her eyes. dark eyes at me. Yeah. <laughs> Don and Claudia do not get along. <laughs> and no. good thing I'm here. Emily. <laughs> it is it is a good actually it's a good little interaction with all three of us because um, of us, <laughs> yeah, because Don comes up to the table and says, Guess what? I announced as I placed my lunch next to Claudia's, I'm going to save the planet. Claudia just blinked her dark eyes at me and said, It's about time. Christy took a big bite of her ick hamburger and cracked, I was gonna save it, but I have a big softball game this afternoon. <laughs> so, seems right. LOL, <laughs> except I feel like in that specific exchange you are dawn and i am christy oh, sure. it's convenient it's convenient that's fine i'll allow it because it's your birthday it's my birthday <laughs> oh man oh so the only tally was sophisticated yep. huh yep. what did what were everyone's favorite weird lines i feel like there were a lot of like the ghost writers really leaned into kids mispronouncing things in this oh, book. Yeah. <laughs> i liked the one that um andrew does i think right of of pollution pollution <laughs> yeah although i think then, we need to i think we need to have the title of the podcast be ecomaniac that's what i put it's down. a good one <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, just fit, yeah. it just fits really well yeah Susie I'm, barrett I'm saying that. yeah Susie barrett saying hip a lot of mess was pretty good too that was um, yeah 
I yeah, liked Hippolytus. But I did put Ecomaniac as my main one. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good title. Fair okay, enough. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. What should we? <laughs> Democracy. What, what should we pizza toast to? Rain sticks? Mm. That seems like the most optimistic thing in this episode. Honestly, yeah. It's been a little depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I love a rain stick. I'm happy to pizza toast to a rain stick. Fantastic. Sounds good to me. Okay. Pizza toast to rain sticks. To, to rain, rain sticks. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for.